Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're going to introduce you to the mums that want to legalize drugs. This is a very special episode of Stop and Search on Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST, in association with Lit UK, and we're in association with anyoneschild.org on this one. So here we go. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Thanks for joining us, guys. So this is a very special episode of Stop and Search. It's a collaborative effort with Anyone's Child. They flew Donna May, who's a Canadian mum, all the way over to tell her story, along with Anne-Marie Coburn, who is a UK mum that you might have seen on Newsnight, and there's quite a viral clip of Anne-Marie going around at the moment. They introduced Anne-Marie as saying that she called for the legalisation of all drugs earlier in the evening. Well, this is that event. This is where she called for the legalisation of all drugs. Please listen to this, take it in, absorb it. It's chaired by Decker Aikenhead, past Stop and Search guest, a friend of ours, Guardian journalist. Let's get straight into this. I'll speak to you at the end. Thank you very much indeed. Um, it's, uh, it's My name is Decker Aikenhead and uh, it's a real pleasure to be here and to see you all here this evening. Um, for our guests this evening, of course, uh, there's no pleasure in being here. Um, it's a kind of awful tabloidy cliche, the thing about a parent's worst nightmare, but for our two guests, Donna May and, and Anne-Marie Coburn, they really have lived through every parent's worst nightmare, and I think um, I speak for all of us this evening just by saying thank you very much for being here. Um, a long, long time ago when I was very young and didn't have children and I used to argue with people about our drugs laws they would say oh yeah 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 you say that now but when you have children you're going to say something very very different and uh, I do have children now <clears throat> and um, I can safely say that what I thought back then when they used to say that <laughs> I haven't changed my mind on I used to think they used to say you won't want your children taking drugs and I just think, what an absolutely bonkers observation to make because what I want them to do in terms of taking drugs or not 
will be literally neither here nor there. I mean, I really want it to be 80 degrees tomorrow in London and to be a real scorcher, but the weather's going to do its own thing, regardless of what I want. And the idea that we as parents are going to have some control over this is a kind of self-delusional of King Canute proportions. And now that I do have children, and I look at our drugs policy and our drugs laws, I think, Jesus, God, I feel more strongly about this than I ever did before I have children. Because kids are going to experiment with drugs, and that's an absolute given, and I don't want them to pay the price for this that, so, that some children have had to pay. And Anne-Marie, I know there's a line you use about your daughter, Martha, where you say, she wanted to get high, she didn't want to die. And that line breaks my heart. And I wondered if we could begin with you by telling us a bit about the circumstances that bring you here tonight. Um, like what you've just said, um, no responsible parent wants to think of their child getting high. Um, but Martha was three months short of her 16th birthday and she, I'd found out a few weeks earlier she had tried ecstasy and I sat her down and I just said, why would you do that to yourself? And she said, it makes me feel happy. And I said, aren't you happy? And she said, yes, but it makes me feel even happier. And I was kind of dumbfounded, thinking, so happy is not even enough. You want to be even happier than happy. And, but knowing how I brought my child up, you know, I encouraged her to try spicy food. To, we went around the world. You know, she would climb trees and swim the lake and do all these things. And there was no fear in her. And my child was curious. And to be curious is to be human. Um, in respect of drugs, I was just blissfully ignorant on the subject. So when she sat down with me and I was trying to lecture her, I said, those pills could be mixed with rat poison and just don't do it. Um, now, a few weeks later, Martha did listen to my advice because what she got was 91% pure. But the difference between poison and medicine is dose. And she took enough for five to 10 people in one go and died three hours later. And that was it. And that was my time as a mother, finished altogether. Is she your only child? Was she your only child? Yeah. 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 Um, Marie, um, I'm wondering, in those very first instances, you know, in those first awful sort of hours and days, whether you blamed the drug, the drug dealer, those are the conventional ways that our, that our hearts and minds go to in those circumstances, aren't they? In the early days, I, I was just trying to survive what had happened and sort of get up each day. And, you know, every day I would wake up without her. I was, it was a big shock. So I was heavily medicated for six weeks oh, on diazepam. <laughs> and I'm not, I don't even take a headache pill now. I'm not that kind of person. But I needed to be comfortably numb while I just survived my worst fear coming true. Um, within a few days, a young boy had come forward, handed himself in. He was 17, and he was a friend of a friend of Martha's. Um, and then the sort of criminal justice system took hold. And he had told her the, the MDMA? Yeah, to a friend of hers. Was yeah. he a dealer, or was he a friend who was just kind of... Just a, a schoolboy. Yeah. He was probably making a bit of extra money. But I didn't really... I didn't blame anybody... I just slowly, over the next few weeks, started to gather myself and look for answers. Um, and I've done nothing but since that point. 
And we'll come back to that in a moment. Donna, if I can say hello to you too and ask you to tell us a bit about how you came to be here. Yes. Hi. Hi. And nice to meet everyone. I'm from Canada, and our policies there fall a little bit differently than you do here in the UK. But there's no difference between the grief that you feel when you lose a child to something that you don't need to lose a child to. Um, my daughter, Jack, was the mother of three children. She became addicted to Oxycontin. It was a prescription from a doctor. And it's a very common story. Uh, when, she was, when it was determined that she was addicted to the drug, the doctor dismissed her as his patient without any other type of um, care provided, no psychiatric counseling and no um, addiction treatment. So she very quickly went to the street. When she couldn't find heroin, she turned to fentanyl. And when chewing on a fentanyl patch or a corner of a fentanyl patch wasn't enough for her, she began injecting. And that was my first clue that there was something drastically wrong in my daughter's life. And it came by call from Children's Aid Society telling me that my eldest granddaughter hadn't been in school for nearly two-thirds of the school year. And um, they suspected that my daughter was using drugs. And I'm going, my daughter using drugs? <laughs> I was just, uh, like, couldn't happen to me. It was, um, if it was happening, I would know about it. Um, but the truth of the matter was that I was willfully blind. I didn't want to see all the signs of what was going on. It was easier. It was more comfortable. Um, and I had to face what was happening. And when I went and visited with my daughter, she lived several hours away from me, I realized just how bad the situation was. Um, but I was taught to practice tough love, and I was very good at it. Um, I was an excellent mother, if that's how you base mothering. Um, and I drove her even further and further to the streets. I took her children away from her. I had her put in jail. I tried all of the measures that moms can use to straighten out their child. And um, I drove her to the street, and I drove her into hiding, and I drove her into criminal activity to get her drugs. And um, she ended up running away and running for her life because of her criminal involvement. And I got a call telling me that my daughter had presented at hospital with flesh-eating disease. She had been injecting drugs in an unsan unsanitary conditions, and um, she had contracted infections that took both of her calves, her thighs, and her buttocks, and they were hoping to amputate her legs at the groin to save her life. Um, I arrived at hospital to find out that it was already too late, that the infection had spread into her internal organs, and that she had days, maybe hours, at best two weeks to live. So I was a mother who had to look at her daughter and say, because of my ignorance towards addiction, you are about to lose your life. And what do you want to do with it now? And Jack turned to me and she said, I want you to walk in my shoes. I want you to understand what addiction is. I'm dying. 
And through you, my voice will go on. And that's the only way that my life will have purpose. From the day that my daughter died, that's all I've been doing. And I met up with Jane from Anyone's Child and joined forces with Anne-Marie and other mothers across Canada to let them know that substance use is not a death sentence. It is something that we can treat and we can walk through with our child. And we would do that with anything else that happened to them. I have faced that with my other children, with cancer, and with other illnesses that they've faced. My husband with diabetes, and I don't treat him the way that I treated my daughter. There's no reason for a parent to have the shame and the stigma and, and the degradation that we put on parents. Through Jane, through people like her, through anyone's child, I have felt the bond and the strength to move on, to work with other parents and to bring them to the understanding that at, together our voices are our strength and we can work from the government down to society to bring about the change that we need to keep our children alive. Donna, can you tell me a bit about the campaigning work that you've done in Canada subsequently? Um, presumably there was a, this couldn't have happened overnight and you have these two weeks with your daughter and she's dying and she's telling you what she wants and you're having to shift your whole position, your whole perspective. That can't have been easy to do, even though she was asking you to. Um, well, I'm just going to... I may have misstated the way that the turn of events... Jack actually said to me when she asked me to advocate for change and, and the way people looked at addiction, she told me at that point, the doctors are wrong. She said, it's going to take me six months at least to teach you. And Jack died two, three days short of six months. And she spent every waking moment in pain, sitting with me, teaching me the things that I could have and should have done different. And believe me, that was one brave little girl because to face me and tell me I'm wrong um, was quite a feat. Um, so, go ahead. I was going to ask, um, up until that point, up until you had that time with your daughter and she's teaching you this, had you heard from, had, any, had you had any other message from authorities, sort of statutory services, the health professionals, had you had a message from anyone else telling you that the tough love model that you'd been that you'd been assured would work possibly wasn't the only way forward well I lived by experience then because my mind was changing and we were facing all of her hospital visits and further surgeries and multiple healthcare providers who were too practicing tough love and treating her and me with um, stigma and shame and by that point, it was like, this is not going to work to get my daughter better, and it's not helping me to support my daughter. Um, so that was where I found my voice. It was, we're not doing that this, this way any longer. And it took me getting very, very angry and standing in the middle of a hospital corridor screaming, I'm demanding that all of my daughter's care providers meet with me 
at seven o'clock tomorrow morning to have this discussion. And they did. Every single one of them that was on shift that morning met with me. And I just, it was just very clear to me that things needed to shift. And they were ready for shift. People have a, um, an innate need to learn and to learn different from what they're doing wrong. Um, and I, I, like when I said I learned my voice, I did learn my voice because I saw the difference that reason could make. So I knew that when I left and I, when we left the hospital and it was, and Jack died and it was time to carry on what she had asked me to do, the fear of changing the world wasn't there anymore. My worst fear had always, had already been realized. She was dead. There was nothing I was going to do to change that, but there was something I could do to honor that. And I am doing it, and I did do it. And reaching out to Jane and anyone's child was one of my first steps. Meeting mothers with similar experiences were my second steps. Gaining that mutual support, and then reaching out to, to new mothers who had just recently lost their children, and saying, you're not alone. And the way you might have seen this may not be the way that it really was. Let's have this talk. Let's have this discussion. And let's see what we can do to change the world. And we met up with Jane to go to the United Nations for UNGAS, which is um, the General Assembly on Substance Use. And we knew that the, the mother's voice, the parental voice, was not part of those discussions. It was all about policy and, you know, what made sense in a global aspect, which made absolutely no sense at the humane level and at the parenting level. And we decided that we were going to start with our federal politicians who were going to be at these tables making these decisions and saying, no, you're not making this decision for us. We're making it with you. Um, teach us and let us teach you. And it was the guidance of anyone's child that, and, and Jane and Stephen from Transform UK that taught us what, the, what needed to change and how to go about changing it. Um, so now there is a real connection between the families that are most affected by, by these policies and the people that make the policies. And there's the discussions and, and the coalition is building between us so that we can make effective change, not just popular change or accepted change. Those words popular and accepted <clears throat> um, kind of resonate through this, don't they? Because there are expectations about how a parent will respond to a child's death in the circumstances. There's a kind of, there's a received wisdom, almost a, a script. And Amory, you, I imagine, after your daughter died, will have been very aware of this, that people would have expected you to, um, to be angry with drugs, angry with drug dealers, and say that in order to protect parents from having to go through what I go through, in order to protect children, we have to have stronger laws, we have to enforce them harder, we have to fight the drugs war more intensely than we've been doing. Did, you have, did it feel as if that was what was expected of you? Um, I, I'm not sure what was expected of me, but what I did in the first few months and the first year I spent finding answers, meeting experts, um, aligning myself with anyone I could to help educate me on the subject. I 
one afternoon I was looking online for some bereavement counselling and I got onto Leah Betts' Wikipedia page. And I, I, it dawned on me this afternoon when someone was interviewing me that the moment I walked into the crash room and looked at Martha, it was Leah Betts that was lying there. It was the same image. And that dawned on me this afternoon, I think, talking to you, actually. Um, through her Wikipedia page, in some kind of footnote, I discovered Transform and I phoned them up because I needed to talk to somebody who understood this subject. And I said who I was and what had happened. And this was the... Um, I found them the day before Martha's funeral, in fact. So it was very early on. And I, I knew that I had a lot, of, a lot to learn and I didn't know a lot of the answers, but I certainly knew I was on that avenue of the laws did not keep my child safe because I know what type of family we were. I know how we lived our life. Um, and all I've done since then is, is use the answers and use the evidence and kept telling my story in order to push for change and to make politicians feel very uncomfortable and taking Martha's shoes around us. Donna takes Jack's shoes to say there is no one to fill the shoes. We take the steps that they can't um, sitting in a political office with a, your dead child's shoes. Well, you know, the people facing you shudder. They want to get rid of you. They can't get you out of the room quickly enough. Um, but I've used the evidence, and all we're asking is for them to use the evidence in return. Do you get the sense that they are listening to you with an open mind, and they're looking at the evidence with an open mind, or do you feel that you're dealing with a kind of resistance of prejudice? Well, it depends what political party they stand for, I suppose. Um, there are a lot of engaged politicians. We know people like Caroline Lucas. We've done a debate with her in Parliament. They used Martha's story to launch that debate. Um, Julian Huppert. You know, and there are a few others that we know of who are engaged with it. Um, so we don't know why David Cameron went from being a legaliser in his early career to when he got to high office having this kind of insomnia. And that's a bit of baffling to people like us. Um, some engage with us and some avoid us. My local politician is Nicola Blackwood, and she never turns up for any meetings, um, which is... In, she's so disengaged with the local community that she actually wrote a letter to Martha a year after Martha died in response to a school project that Martha had written to her about. Um, and that's, that's just not OK in my eyes. What would have protected your daughter, do you think? What, what, what laws, what legislation, what drug policy would have saved or protected your daughter? Well, I feel if Martha had taken something that was licensed and regulated with a label containing a list of ingredients and a recommended dosage, she could have made a more informed decision and she would not have gone on to take enough of five to ten people in one go. Um, so I'm advocating for all drugs to be legally regulated in order to protect the young and the vulnerable. Can I ask you the same question, Donna? What, would it, what have you been asking for from the legislators and the, uh, uh, and the bureaucrats that you deal with? What, are you, what is your message to them? Well, we've actually come a, a long way in comparison to the UK and Canada, and we're about to um, have supervised injection facilities um, opened up well, primarily in my community right now, and 
with the expansion right across Canada. And we are looking at legalizing and regulating cannabis. Now, that is not a deadly drug, so, it, but it is the lead to other better good things. Um, so we have had movement. We've had that since we had our liberal, liberal government um, voted in. But they seem to be at a stall and at a stage where they're afraid to move any further. So it means that parents like myself need to really um, engage with them and, and talk to them. Right now in, in Canada, at least, um, our crisis isn't the same in that, you know, in the same as far as the drugs that are causing the overdoses and the overdose deaths or um, permanent impairment. Um, we're not at the ecstasy stage, we're into the opiate stage where fentanyl and carfentanyls are being consumed by unaware uh, youth and, and other substance users. So fentanyl would be 100 times more powerful than morphine and carfentanyl 100 times more powerful than, than fentanyl. Um, they're co- uh, fentanyl is used as an anesthesiologist. Anesthetic. (laughs) Put people out. Um, And carfentanil is used to put elephants down. That's how powerful it is. One or two grains of salt equals a deadly dose of fentanyl. And the problem is is that when it's mixed in clandestine labs, we never know where those two grains of salt is in the dose. You could get nothing one time and everything the next time. And for me personally, that's happened three times in three weeks to people that I love and know. Uh, Two fellow advocates and one son of of an advocate who's out there asking for drug policy change. So you're asking me, what's happening at the government and and how we... I'm sorry, I kind of got a little bit off track there. Um, I think that what it's going to take is the next new crisis to get things changed. We have a government now that feels that they've done what they could and that public opinion will not let them go any further. And what I say is that it's public ignorance, not opinion. Um, and ignorance being defined as the lack of or unwillingness to learn. Um, And it's our government's, should be our government's priority to teach first. And I was just speaking with another interviewer, and um, it, it dawned on me, we don't teach before we declare a public emergency nationally or even provincially. We don't teach, you know, what Ebola is going to do before we call the crisis. We call the crisis and then we teach. We're in crisis, and I intend to go back to Canada and call them on it and make sure that crisis is called and that we are responding to it appropriately. Donna, in your experience of campaigning, what do you think is the single most powerful or effective message or voice that changes public opinion, that makes people re-examine their prejudices, the things that they've just grown up with, the just-say-no rhetoric? What is it? The voice of the woman who carries the child. There is no stronger voice. There's no father that can say, and I, not to say that fathers don't lose or don't love their children and don't lose their children. They do. But there is a spiritual connection, or at least there was for me, with each one of my pregnancies where you are bonded to that the moment that you realize that you've missed your menstrual cycle and 
that there's something growing inside of you that you are nurturing, that's feeding from you, that is gathering your thoughts, your impressions, your DNA. Um, and it's a, it's a bond that cannot be broken even in death. I feel closer to my daughter today than I ever did when she was alive. She sits with me. She walks in the shoes. She's sitting on the table, um, you know, telling me what needs to, to happen and what needs to be heard amongst these people um, that can go back to their policymakers and, and their community and say, you know, I heard these amazing words and they triggered something in me and now I'm going to fight for the change that that person spoke of. It's all of our voices collectively, whether you believe in what I'm saying about legalization regulation or not, it's your opinion that changes policy. And I invite you to exercise that. That is your right. That is your basic duty to humanity is to exercise your voice and your opinion. Can I ask, have either of you ever been told that you're being irresponsible, that the message that, the, that you're campaigning for is dangerous or um, will put other children at risk? Um, whether I'm at a bus stop or at my yoga class, um, my, my rate of sort of conversion is pretty high, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> because I just say, well, you know, they'll say, can you imagine legal regulation? They'll be a free-for-all. I said... Go out now. If you're five or 55, you can get whatever you like. You know, but they can't get alcohol the same way because there's a request for ID. So it's about waking up to it. I used to think we're not that type of family. And I'm sitting here in my dead daughter's shoes, you know. So when the first train spotting film came out, I was pregnant with Martha and I watched it and I was really horrified and I thought, wow, that's a very, a world a very, very far away from my reality. And I went to see the, the second one recently. And my 15-year-old is in her grave having died of an ecstasy overdose. And the second film is not as shocking to me. Um, and that's 20 years. The world has changed. And this is our reality now. So we can all do something about this. We just need to keep talking about it. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Did you, um, would you have, if you think back then when you watched that first train spotting film, did you imagine that drugs laws protected you and your family, that they prevented people from taking drugs? Well, you like to think that things, measures are in place to keep you safe. Um, now I'm more engaged with this, um, this has provoked me into being engaged and I don't have Martha to distract me in the same way I used to, so I've got a lot of time on my hands. Um, it's been quite a shock to me to see what isn't in place when you go to talk to certain politicians and find out what they don't know. It really is quite shocking to me. And presumably both of you will encounter people who say, in principle, I'm sympathetic. I agree with you, the drug, current drug law, it's a mess, doesn't work. And then they talk about some tentative measure like decriminalisation. Um, do you then have to explain to them why that doesn't go far enough? What do you say, Donna, to people who say, well, of course, decriminalisation is the answer? I think I just said it when I said that I lost three friends in three weeks. If we're going to wait for decriminalisation... How many people are going to die? And will it be your child? Will it be your husband? Will it be your partner? I mean, it's, right now, substance use is happening with everyone's child and anyone's child. Um, do we have the time to wait? And my answer is always no. Um, we need to go to the, if you want to call it drastic, I call it humane. We have to go to the measures of legalizing and regulating um, because we we have a measure that we can use and we're not. We just aren't. I don't understand that. I just don't understand that. And, you know, in saying that to our Minister of Health, Jane Philpott, um, who I have been granted the privilege of sitting with and discussing this, um, she also lost a child to a very unnecessary death. And I said, you know, you understand that you lost your daughter and you didn't need to. That drug that, that your daughter needed was just too far away from you, physically far away from you, to be able to access it. And it caused your daughter to die. Otherwise, she'd still be here. She'd be 20 years old. I believe it was last week. I said, you have to realize I lost my daughter unnecessarily too. Measures could have been in place to save her life, and they weren't. This is not making any sense. It's inhumane. Amra, do you ever get the feeling that if you had taken... <clears throat> most people here will remember the death of a teenager called Leobeth 20 years ago and her parents absolutely came out and, and wanted people to see her death and the tragedy of her death in order to reinforce the message that you must just say no, that we must have tougher laws, um, parents must teach their children to just say no. And... I was a young journalist at the time and I, and I remember how <clears throat> the, 
that message resonated with the media. The media was very keen to spread that message, um, falling over itself to do so, you know, under the misapprehension that they were somehow helping families and protecting children. And I'm curious about whether 20 years on, you have found that the media is as interested and open to hear you saying something very, very different as we were, as the media was back then, or whether you ever come encounter any resistance in the media in telling your story. Um, there's a lot of resistance, actually. But even in the short three and a half years I've been involved with this, there has been a tide of change. I've gone from initially having a lot of people being quite aggressive towards me because what I'm saying scares them. And they don't understand what I'm meaning when I say I want all drugs to be legally regulated. But if you follow that up with the context and saying in order to protect the young and the vulnerable, then and you have the dialogue beyond that, then that helps them. Ten people die in the UK every single day from a drug-related death. There are ten more pairs of empty shoes every single day. I mean, you tell them that, you think, well, you know there's something not right. So you kind of bring in your little bullet points to sort of cultivate that inside them and try to get them to engage with this subject. But again, as I say earlier, you know, it's evidence at all times, as far as I'm concerned. And Donna, as you say, there, there have been extraordinary and radical changes in Canadian drug policy law, um, not least because of your own contribution recently. As you, it, it has currently stalled, and that's a source of great frustration. But I'm curious about whether you've witnessed a similar kind of sea change in the attitudes of the popular media. I did. Um, I, d I didn't have a lot of opposition, and maybe that's because I talk too much. I don't give them the chance. <laughs> um, I, I think that my voice was respected because I was one of the first to get up and start being very vocal about the need for change. And, and again, I think it was their fear probably of me um, that, you know, stopped them from being, um, vocal about maybe their own thoughts and stop them and, and have them consider. So, you know, thank you to all of them in the beginning days to standing back and letting me have my say and letting me be the grieving mum who had a loud voice um, because it did make change and it did uh, encourage me to go further and, and faster than I might have gone. Um, I, I, I want to say that, you know, the government isn't, responding to all overdoses. Um, supervised injection is only going to help a marginal portion of people who use drugs, and we need it. We absolutely need it. Um, but we were talking, when I was advocating for supervised injection, it was for people that were street involved, like my daughter was, people that needed that service of health care. Um, what I didn't realize is that this crisis has moved beyond street-involved substance users and that we are losing as many and more um, substance users that are don't identify as being street-involved. They are, you know, the doctor, the lawyer, um, people who are even using marijuana that find fentanyl laced into it. Um, Coke is... is laced with fentanyl. These are people that are using substances, not expecting to overdose from them. Um, so we have a whole other demographic now that are dying from substance use who, who will never identify themselves as in need of supervised injection, naloxone supervision, all of the measures that we try to put in place for them to save their lives is totally ineffective and unsuccessful. 
Um, you were mentioning the overdose rates, Anne-Marie, uh, in the UK. In Ontario alone, we are experiencing one death every 12 hours in Ontario alone. And that's not counting statistics properly because we don't have the ability to um, register every opiate death in Ontario yet. Um, it's just been enacted. And when you take a look at Canada provincially and territorially, the only ones that keep up-to-date statistics are BC and Alberta. Um, so we, we have a long ways to go. And we, we are in a further crisis than we can even imagine. Can you explain to some, <clears throat> there may be some people who aren't quite sure how the supervised injection system would work. Can you describe it to us? I can. Um, I've actually been to visit the facility just recently in BC. Um, and there are two models. Um, there's the Insight model, which is a standalone facility that's centered in a, a neighborhood where substance use has been primary. And it is um, very open um, to and conducive to people using people who use drugs problematically using it. Um, so you would walk in, you would be assessed if, um, for the type of drug that you're using. Um, you would have time and and not be rushed into preparing your dosage. Um, you, there are nurses on staff that watch each and every one who is injecting and is capable of responding to an overdose, which they are doing on a, now they're, they're doing it on a multiple times a day, where it used to be once or twice in a month. Um, if that person decides that this is the last time that they want to use or they want to refrain from using or cut down and using, they can go up to the second floor, which is a facility of detox where they're, super, they're, they're supervised through their detox procedure. If they decide that they want to continue through detox into recovery, there is the third floor, which uh, will house them and get them into permanent facilities and into rehab facilities. Um, so the care providing um, that a person needs to go from using on the street right through to recovery is under one roof and they're guided each and handheld each step of the way so they're never making those steps alone on their own without any guidance and without any support um, the second facility is more of a medical care facility um, a public health facility where um, they can use their substances but and get wound care and, and, you know, the typical health care that you would expect anyone to be accessing. But it doesn't have the same feel and it's not as accessible to street-involved users. I'd like to ask you one more question and then we have some time to take questions from the floor. Uh, I think Jason has a microphone. He might come and steal one of our highly deficient ones. Um, and it's... Um, in a sense, it's an unanswerable question, but I'm curious about where your instinct lies. Do you imagine that there will come a point where if we all reconvened, we would be saying, God, you did it. You did it. Look, drugs are now completely regulated and licensed, and the kinds of stories that you're telling this evening will never, ever be repeated, or is your hunch that that's, that that's not going to happen in our lifetimes? What, what would you guess? Um, is this working? Yeah. We talked about this over the weekend, in fact. Um, 
It's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. It's not soon enough for our daughters, as we know, but it is, and I think when it does happen, it's going to be very quick. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it will be in the next decade, if not sooner. Tomorrow's too soon, or, or not <laughs> soon <late>. enough. <laughs> um, I'm very optimistic. Did I think that things would change and I'd be sitting at the UN and having Mr. Philpott speak about my daughter in an address? No. And I know that I got up from that, um, that address and I was so proud of Jack and the things that she went through in order to get me to speak to Minister Philpott, Minister Philpott to speak about her and me hear the words of my daughter's story coming from somebody of such importance. And it was, cr it was crushing and beautiful at the same time. Um, yes, I do believe it's going to happen. Unfortunately, I think it's going to take the next crisis. And it might take another crisis after that, in Canada at least. I can't speak for the UK. Um, do I think that they want to make these changes? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that the public, as they've stated, are not ready for it. That just tells me that I'm not speaking loud enough. Um, there's a gentleman at the back with his hand up. Good evening. Gary Hayes. Um, I have a daughter who is an addict. And if I look at the emotion which is driving the addiction, I think it's greed and ignorance. What does the panel think? Donna, that's, I think, one for you. Um, are you talking about the greed? Who are you referring to when you speak of greed and, and ignorance? Are you talking about the ignorance of society and the greed of the dealers? The emotion which, uh, as an addict, the person um, relies on most when they make that inconceivable decision to take one more shot to damage their health, their body, their soul, their everything. That inner um, motivation, it is one emotion as I understand it, but I may well be wrong. Um, I would have, I would advise you to re-examine that and, and find out whether that is your truth or not. Um, I can't speak for you. I know for me, my daughter had no ability to decide whether she was going to use opiates again or not. It was just a matter of when and how soon. Um, even, even in her dying days, uh, watching her withdraw while she was waiting for her next dose of pain medication um, that was then prescribed to her because she was in physical pain, um, so my daughter was fighting both addiction and physical pain at the same time. To watch her go through that withdrawal, to go through that pain, um, I don't think it's a decision or an emotion. I think it's a physicality. Um, and it's debilitating, um, especially on opiates. And I, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to answer your question other than to say what I just said. I don't think that your daughter is going through a willful behavior. Um, I think that it's something that is treatable. Um, and I think the best treatment that I could have provided my daughter sooner would be to get to the point of understanding where she was at in her addiction 
and walking through the, the course of it with her rather than um, doing what I did, which was pushing her further into it. And it's not an easy road. It's one of the most difficult roads that you will have to face in your lifetime. It's more difficult than dying yourself. There's a lady at the front here, Jason. Hello. Um, I'm a family doctor from Birmingham in England and uh, very moved by, by this evening. Um, I agree with you completely that it seems crazy to me that we can know how much, what strength of alcohol we're drinking and how much we're consuming and the hundreds of thousands of people who take ecstasy each weekend don't have that privilege because almost it feels like we can't be bothered to organise our systems properly. I learnt from, from my patients, actually, but also from Transform and Steve Rolls and um, that the, 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 the system you're describing of strict regulation is what we need, so I agree with you completely. But I wanted to ask as well, you, you got into your, your... Sorry, your daughter's dependency started with um, pain prescriptions, and as a family doctor, I did have patients who went through that. And when I recognised through them attending my surgery that they'd become dependent. I, because I had a special interest in helping people who use drugs, I used to kind of scoop them up from the repeat prescription pile <laughs> and invite them in and gradually discuss the thing of dependency and then start to treat them for the dependency with the opiate substitute treatment, which we know can help people to, con to get through this and, 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 and then gradually move on beyond that to, to recovery. And I wondered in Canada, do you think there is sufficient help for people? You, you said as soon as they realised that she was dependent, that was the end of the prescription. Well, that to me, that's, that's where the problem, one of the many problems lay, but we've talked about a lot of problems. Uh, it's just been recent that Canada has um, moved on allowing doctors to widely prescribe methadone or suboxone. And what they've done is gone to the suboxone model, um, which is, suboxone is a, um, it has two components. One would be your um, opiate and the other one would be naloxone. So what it does is it gives you the, the need, it fulfills the need for the opiate, but it also has a, a portion to it that will stop you from getting higher if you take, if you, if you put other opiates on board. And it's the preferred method because it's the safest method, but it's also the least liked method because people who are on, um, on it still want to use more drugs and get even higher than what they were before. Um, my daughter was one of those. She, she was on methadone and she still took other substances. What I like about the methadone program is that it keeps them maintained and it keeps them from getting, um, going into withdrawal. And, um, that over a period of time gets them to the point, and I've seen this happen in many cases where they no longer go out and seek to get higher than their methadone dosage. It's a matter of time and experience. Um, so I'm encouraging Canada to stay with both practices and giving them the reason why. I don't know whether they'll listen to me or not. Um, we we do have um, we have just passed um, uh, bills that will allow doctors to do um, 
heroin replacement therapy. And, uh, and that is not being received well because doctors don't want that in their practice. It is not something that they want to um, put the cost out for. So we know that methadone clinics have been very expensive to set up and maintain because of the daily dosages that we have to supervise all the time. And the same would be true for heroin. So we have um, heroin that we have to protect so that it isn't stolen and, and sold on the black market. And we have, so we have that cost. We have the cost of supervising all these injections and it's just not something that's been widely accepted in the medical practice but I do think that um, and we've talked about this with Minister Philpott that we have to make it mandatory that we have these types of clinics in the areas that they're needed and that we do have doctors that are going to provide it or we don't have doctors do we need doctors I mean I think (laughs) I think I truly think that these these people who use drugs know more than our doctors do, so that's just my personal opinion. Um, I wondered if I could ask <laughs> if I could ask you a question about your sense of the medical profession at large. The way you you state the case for um, you you state your case as if it's just so self evident, you know, that what we've been doing isn't working, that we need to take a different approach. Well, that, is that's that, true. But is that a widely shared view amongst the health professionals that you know, or are you something of a maverick? Uh, I am not a maverick. (laughs) I think um, health professionals are like the rest of the population. When they haven't thought things through and they haven't looked at it and they haven't experienced it, and I've I've worked for 30 years with people going through this journey, and I've gradually, gradually come to the realisation of this. But other people haven't had that experience, have they? And... You, you read the Daily Mail. Well, I don't read the Daily Mail, but you read the new. You know, um, you you read and you, you you believe what you're told. But if any med- health professionals who do experience the kind of things you're describing, I think it's kind of common sense. And in, in this room, I'm sure everybody's listening to what you're saying and saying, "Well, that sounds about right." And I think health professionals are a mixed bunch in the same way. But I do think the conversation's changing. Uh, rapidly, as you said as well, and over the I retired from my GP surgery a few years ago, and over the last even three, four, five years, each year the conversation is changing to a bit more common sense. And I really like you. I'm frustrated by the slow pace of it, but um, the more people talk about it, I do think the more people will understand the good sense of it. And you're talking about sorry, just quickly, you're talking about the cost um, in Scot in England. We we had three um, trial pilots, they call them irritating, isn't it, of heroin-assisted treatment for people, for that group of people who the other things aren't helping. And it was all published a, a couple of years ago, and, and it, they proved that it was cost-effective and it worked and saved money and saved lives and all of that. Um, it's this cost-effectiveness, but Scotland now are about to start heroin-assisted treatment again and, and, and some places in England... Um, and uh, I heard last a couple of weeks ago the figures that um, method, in this country methadone type treatment costs three three to five thousand pounds a year. About heroin assisted treatment might cost about fifteen thousand pounds a year, but putting somebody in prison for a year costs forty five thousand pounds a year, and coping with somebody's death, of course. That's... My daughter had three young girls. 
that have have suffered and will continue to suffer. Um, you know, five years ago, they were just little girls. They were just babies, really. One was literally a baby um, who has now grown, grown up without a mother. So think of that generational cost. Think of um, the eldest granddaughter who is now 21 with four children. So, you know, uh, so there's me that's been affected. There's my daughter and my, my sons who've been affected. There's her children that have been affected. And now my great-grandchildren that have been affected by one substance death. Jason, I've got a feeling you're hovering to say that we're... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> trying to keep on top of the microphones. They're playing us oh, up Oh, well, good again. luck with that. <laughs> I know. I think Jane and I are going to share tonight. Do we have time for one more question? One more quick one, if that's all right. Um, oops. Who's got their hand up? Oh, you got the last one. There we are. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm an American, and uh, in a capitalist society, and with government-regulated things, um, particularly pharmaceuticals, uh, I, I think that there's a room for error with how things are produced and sold, and uh, the regulation isn't perfect, and a lot of times it can cause more harm than good. And I was wondering if you um, thought about um, what kind of problems, when giving the government uh, the chance to try and uh, regulate things like this, uh, what can go wrong in that sort of situation? Anne-Marie. Um, I'm not great on this kind of thing, if I'm honest. Is that working? Um, all I can say is I would rather drink licensed alcohol than something from a speakeasy from the 1920s. <laughs> I might be able to look to learn some answers to that question. Um, and I, I agree completely with Anne-Marie on this. Um, everything that's been prohibited has been wanted and, and gotten. You know, we're not going to stop that. Um, I have actually worked very close with Purdue and some of the um, people who are now lobbying for changes that actually work for Purdue. And as a parent whose daughter was so severely affected by the drug that they produce, it, it, you know, it was, for me, it took a lot because the anger was, was utmost at the beginning. Um, but I think it takes dialogue. I think it takes understanding what happened on their part and them owning up to the responsibility and acknowledging it and then working to re-educate um, our pill providers or prescribers um, and for parents to recognize that we too have a, a place and responsibility in educating our children and educating society and so does our government. We all have to take responsibility for our part in the crisis that we're in today. Um, it's not any one person's problem or one person's responsibility or one person's negligence. It's combined. And, you know, when we just say we're not going to blame, we're going to make a difference and we're going to work with each other to make to solve this crisis, we'll come up with the right answer. I think that too much time and too much energy has been putting on, put on who's to blame. It's right. not going to make the difference. 
Donna, thank you. Anne-Marie, thank you. Thank you both so much for speaking here this evening. That was really interesting. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. If you could give a round of applause. So what did you think? The air in the room was one of motivation and inspiration. There was a real tangible sense of needing to get ahead and do things. So if you're interested, make sure you find Anyone's Child on Twitter at Anyone's Child or anyoneschild.org. And just, yeah, please check them out and have a look. And thankfully, we're joined by Jane Slater on the next episode of Stop and Search. She's the project manager of Anyone's Child and works with Transform Drug Policy Foundation. She joined us to have a conversation of what we can learn from other social movements, especially LGBT. And we've also got Peter Tatchell, who's a renowned human rights activist, and Steve Topple, who is a canary writer. You might have seen him on RT. And that's going to be our next episode. And that was such an interesting chat, especially as it followed on directly from the conversation you just heard with Donna May and Amory and Decca Aikenhead. So please do come along, join us for the next one. Uh, we're Stop and Search on the Distraction Pieces Network with Scroobius Pip, brought to you by Acast in association with Lit UK. Do all that kind of thing that you need to, where you rate, subscribe, like us, and all those kind of things. And please do check out Anyone's Child. And we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades. Where true love seldom stray. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.